Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One thing that holds people back from change is that they, they have to give up the hope for having a better past. So they have to give up the hope for having had a better childhood. Or if they're moving into a different kind of relationship, they have to give up the hope of having that person that hurt them really see them for who they are. And so they're still in the fight. And that's part of what prevents people from changing. You're still thinking, I just need to get that person to see me for who I am, whether that's my parent or my partner or you know whatever it is. And they're not going to do that. And so once you let go of the fight, once you say, okay, you know what? Nobody's winning here. Then you're ready to make the change. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow. My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. On today's show, we have a true idol of mine, Laurie Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist and a New York Times best-selling author. Her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is the book that is on everyone's bookshelves, it seems, currently. And honestly, it's one of the favorites I've read. Laurie's TED Talk is also one of the top 10 watched this year. And she's just launched a hit new podcast, Dear Therapist. I very much recommend checking that out and I'll put the details in the show notes. It is such a huge privilege to have this icon on the show to talk to us about her book, therapy and navigating life, love and heartbreak. Let's dive in. What is your favorite quote in the moment and why? So my favorite quote at the moment is something from Viktor Frankl that I include in the book. And it's before stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I think that applies to pretty much every life situation where somebody does something, we have a reaction to it. And often we don't take that space. We just react. And usually not in the way that we would if we took that space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in the way that we choose to respond differently, that is where the growth and the freedom happen. And you see that over and over again uh, with the stories in the book, but also, I think, just in our daily lives. What is a recent life lesson you've been reminded of? In the book, I have this word taped up in my office, ultra-crepidarianism. (laughs) And I love this word because it means 
the habit of giving advice or opinions outside of one's knowledge or competence. Mm. Everybody, I think, is in very close quarters right now, um, and everybody is trying to give everybody else advice. And I think what we really need to do is do more listening and less advising, especially on matters outside of our knowledge or competence. Only the other person knows what's right for them, and so often we think that we know what's right for somebody else, and we aren't living their lives, and I think we have to remember that and really learn how to listen. That is a great tip for all of us just to question what you're reading rather than absorbing everything. So that couldn't be more relevant for everyone who spends a lot of time online. How do you define happiness? So as you know, I was supposed to be writing a happiness book <laughs> and uh, before writing, maybe you should talk to someone. And the happiness book was actually making me miserable. I called it the miserable depression inducing happiness book because it actually made me depressed, <laughs> ironically enough. And that's because happiness as a byproduct of living our lives in a way that is meaningful to us is I think what we all strive for. That's what we think of when we think of happiness. But instead, a lot of people think of happiness as the goal in and of itself. And happiness as a goal in and of itself is a recipe for disappointment. So it has to be based on meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. And if you don't have those ingredients, if you're just looking for, I just, I just want to be happy, whatever that means, um, that's not going to last very long. So your latest book, maybe you should talk about it, tingles the soul and I really mean that and you've written it in a way that is so unique because you could have put yourself in this guru position and told us all these amazing stories about healing patients and transforming lives but you decided to embrace your own humanity and be seen as a real person not a glorified guru therapist and so many others I find want to preserve this facade that I have all the answers and it kind of goes back to that earlier point you just made but you courageously de-guru the therapist why did you decide to do this? Well, at the very beginning of the book, one of the first things I say is that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. And I think that when somebody is coming to you for help, they don't want to talk to the robot, right? <laughs> they want to talk to a real human being. And I use my humanity in the room. I'm not saying I use my, uh, you know, I talk about my personal life in the room, of course. I'm saying that I use the authenticity of having lived in the world, to help other people figure out how to live in the world. You know, so the book, just for context, it follows four very different patients as they go through their respective struggles. But I'm the fifth patient in the book. So there are actually five patients. As I go through my own struggle, it has to do with a breakup. And I go to a therapist to work through, you know, what I think is something that the ex did that was, you know, he blindsided me was my story. But of course, that's not the story. And my therapist points that out very quickly. And I am not thrilled that he points that out very quickly. And, and I think even as a therapist, what you see is that, you know, when I'm in that room as a patient, I'm just being me, right? And when I am working with my patients as a clinician, everything I learn about myself is important in helping people to learn something new about themselves. So I thought it would be really disingenuous to see all of these people that you read about their stories being so vulnerable with me in the book and then me sort of hiding behind the veil of the expert up on high. So I really wanted to show that underneath it all, we are all more the same than we are different. 
And every one of the kind of characters that you get to know, you really get to love and you can resonate. I mean, I could relate to, you know, the much older man who's married and obviously like, you know, on the surface, I am neither of those things, but you write it in a way that does exactly that, where you bring storytelling and compassion at this intersection that is so beautiful. What I think you do is peel back the layers of understanding of what therapy is. And obviously, I would say in Europe, we're still quite behind on the idea of what therapy is. I know this sounds a deeply simple question, but what is therapy? Let me answer that in a second. I just want to go back to one thing you said, which was about the um, the different people that I follow in the book. And I think that the reason that people can see themselves in every single person in the book, whether it's, you know, the young woman in her 20s who keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including, <laughs> by the way, somebody from the waiting room. I don't mean, by the way, that she was hooking up with him in our waiting room. It's not that exciting, but she meets him in the waiting room. Um, and it's a disaster, as most of her relationships are, until she finally learns why she keeps going after men that are going to disappoint her. Um, but whoever it is, they're four very different people. And again, I'm the fifth person. And I think that's because all of our stories at their core are about one central question, which is how can I love and be loved? And I think everybody in, in life, that's, that's sort of what life is about, right? How can I love and be loved? Whatever that means, it doesn't, you know, in any context, friendships, family, romantic relationships. So that is the central question. That's why I think everybody is so relatable. But you asked what therapy is. And I would say that therapy is almost like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who isn't already in your life. And I say that because in the book, I write about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> right? And we can all relate to that. Idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. They say, this thing happened and this person said this or did this. And we say, yeah, they're terrible. You're right. They're wrong. How dare they? And it feels really good when our friends do that. But it's not always so helpful because if you listen to your friends over time, you'll notice that they start telling you pretty similar stories, maybe different characters, different situations. But it's almost like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. Now, we don't say that to our friends, right? We might see a pattern and we don't say it. A therapist will do the opposite of idiot compassion. A therapist will offer wise compassion, which is we hold up the mirror to you to help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. And when you can do that, you have so much agency and freedom that you didn't previously had. Now you're no longer trapped by the people or circumstances in your life. Now you have choices, which is why that Viktor Frankl quote is so resonant mm -hmm. for me. And so I think therapy is about helping you to see your blind spots, helping you to see the ways that you're keeping yourself stuck. I was a writer, I still am, but I was a writer long before I was a therapist. I used to work in the entertainment business. I worked at NBC doing primetime series development, and I went to medical school. I was a journalist. I had this very circuitous route to becoming a therapist, and everything I did was about story and the human condition. And I feel like what I'm doing in the therapy room, you can see it in my TED Talk where I talk about our faulty narratives. We are all unreliable narrators, and every time someone comes in to the therapy room, they are presenting me a story that is a faulty narrative simply because it's subjective and they're missing important parts of the story and they're missing other perspectives on the story and therapy will help you to edit your story so that 
you get out of this place where the protagonist is stuck. The minute you come into the therapy room, you're coming in because the protagonist is stuck. And by the end of the time that you leave therapy, the protagonist has moved forward. You made a comment or you wrote a comment that just really made me laugh. And it um, it said, therapy is like pornography. You're nude and want to keep it a secret. Why do you think therapy has, it is obviously slowly being destigmatized and your book is such an acceleration of that uh, because you show how normal and necessary and like useful and practical it is. But why do you think in the first place it became, you know, as you said, like pornography? Well, I think, you know, that analogy was about the fact that a lot of people go to therapy and they don't admit it, just like a lot of people, um, you know, look at porn and they don't admit it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there's that vulnerability and there's the the privacy part of it and the shame, right? There's a lot of shame around it, too. One of the things I really wanted to do, and maybe you should talk to someone, is to demystify what therapy is and what it isn't. I think a lot of people think that you go to therapy if something is wrong with you, or you go to therapy and you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you're never going to leave, right? And that's not what therapy is. Therapy is very much about dealing with the present. And yes, we talk about how maybe something from the past, an old story, is affecting the way that you navigate through the world right now. But we really want to focus on what's getting in the way of the way that you're navigating through the world so you can do so more smoothly and then create a different future. And I think that it's very interactive. It's very much about what's going on in the room between you and the therapist as sort of a microcosm of what goes on in your relationships outside of the room. And I think it's a really transformative process. And so it's not like, you know, if you have some kind of diagnosis, you go to therapy. It's almost like, I think we think of our physical health differently from our emotional health. So if, and we compare it, right? So we think like, yeah, I've been really anxious or I'm sad, but it's really not that bad because I have a roof over my head and food on the table and I have some friends and I'm okay, right? We don't do that with our physical health. If you broke your leg, you're not going to say, I'm not going to go to the doctor because they don't have cancer. (laughs) You're not going to be like, other people have it worse, so I'm not going to go. And it's really not that bad. And so I think what happens is, people, when something feels off in our bodies, we go and get it checked out. When something feels off emotionally, we minimize it. We make excuses on why we don't need to get it checked out. And then people don't land in my office until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. Mm. And by then, first of all, they've suffered unnecessarily for however long it's been going on. And secondly, it's a little bit harder to treat at that point because we didn't address it when it first presented itself. Yeah, very true. So Charlotte, we spoke about a little bit before, but she's this character in your book who's in her 20s and obviously deeply resonated, slightly anxious, and as you said, likes to date the same sort of guy. And you write, she equated feeling loved with anxiety. And I've researched this a lot, but for some reason, the way you delivered it, it suddenly really clicked. Um, And you describe uh, what Freud meant uh, by his concept of repetition compulsion. And I just was like, oh, now I get why we repeat patterns. I would love you to kind of break that down for us now, if that's possible. So, so many people, especially if they grew up in a way where they say, you know what, when I grow up, I'm going to have a different kind of family or I'm going to have a different kind of partner. And they think that what they're going after is something different. So whatever they're attracted to, they think, oh, this person's so different from my mom, my dad, my family, whatever. And they are like moth to flame with that person. You know, they just are like 
gravitate toward that person. And that person looks very different on the surface, but underneath it all, the reason that they gravitated toward that person was because that person was exactly like the family they were trying to escape or the dynamic they were trying to escape. It was because that person felt familiar. It's like, oh, you look familiar, come closer. Now we're not thinking that, that's what the unconscious mind says. Unconsciously we're saying, you are so radically different. I am so excited about you. (laughs) (laughs) But really the unconscious is saying, oh yeah, that's really familiar, come closer, come here. I recognize that, that's home. And even if home was not what you wanted, it's still home, it's still comfortable and the familiar, even if it was miserable. And so what we don't realize, what Charlotte doesn't realize is she keeps going after the same kind of guy who is going to disappoint her, who is going to devastate her. And she doesn't understand that when she meets someone who can actually be present with her, who actually can give her something different from what she had growing up, um, that she gets really anxious, right? She feels like, oh yeah, I'm not attracted at all to that person. That's how she defends herself against this. Because what happens is there's a thing called cherophobia, which means fear of joy. So chero means uh, joy and phobia, of course, means fear. And cherophobia means that joy isn't pleasure. Joy is anticipatory pain. So if you grew up in a, in a household where the minute you felt joy, like it was there, but then it would go away. You know, in Charlotte's case, oh, my father will, um, he'll be really attentive to me and then he'll just kind of disappear for a while, right? The joy feels very tentative. And so you get very afraid of feeling any joy. So you gravitate toward people that you know are not going to give you that, even though on the surface you think they're going to give you that. So repetition compulsion is this compulsion that we have to get a redo, to redo what we didn't have growing up. This time it's going to be different. With this person, it's going to be different. This time, I am going to have a different outcome than I had as a child, and then I won't feel so helpless. But the problem is you're picking exactly the same kind of person, and you're going to feel just as helpless. So the way out of that is to really understand who are you picking, why are you picking them, how does this repeat something from the past, and what does it take, what kind of courage does it take to break that pattern and to move into a place that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable with someone, that you're not used to dating that type of person, And then you realize, wow, this is the comfort I have always wanted. Yeah, and he so beautifully show how kind of therapy allows you to gain that awareness to be able to break those past patterns. And what I think you do so well is there is this kind of populist belief of manifesting, of kind of creating this future. But as you so beautifully show in the book, if you're not breaking those past patterns, you can't dream up a future if you're not making those kind of like practical decisions in the present, not to repeat the past. Right. What you're doing in the present is you're, is you're recreating the past as opposed to creating something new for the future. And so it's sort of like, how many times do you find yourself ending up in the same place before you say, wait a minute, Mm. I need to do something different. And you see, it's not an easy process. Change is hard. And there's a chapter in maybe you should talk to someone called how humans change. It's about how we don't just make a decision to change. It doesn't work that way. It's not like, you know, New Year's resolutions people make and they say, okay, I'm going to change this. Well, those don't generally last very long. And that's because there's a lot of preparation that goes into change. It's, there's all these stages, pre-contemplation, where you don't even know you're contemplating a change, to contemplating the change, to maybe preparing, we call it preparation for the change, making the change. And the most important part, the most important stage of making a change is maintenance. 
And that is where you maintain the change. And what people don't understand about maintenance is that it's not going, you're not going to make a change and it's going to just stay, that you are going to regress sometimes. You are going to go back sometimes. And usually when people go back, they think, oh, I failed at this. So forget it. I'm just going to go back to my old pattern. And it's not like that. It's like, okay, you went back and now you'll just, you know, go back to this new way of being. And you're going to struggle sometimes. And that's normal. So I think people need to be really compassionate with themselves when they're making a change. Some people think that you need to self-flagellate and be really hard on yourself to be accountable and make a change. But really, the more self-compassion you have, the easier it's going to be to be accountable to yourself because you're going to be really kind when you slip up and it's going to be much easier to get back on track. And this book definitely helps you become a lot more self-compassionate because you realize that you're not alone. Like all these people are going through such similar stories to everything we're going through all day. And there was this one thing you wrote, which I thought like really resonated. And you say, as a therapist, I know a lot about pain, about the ways in which pain is tied to loss. But I also know something less commonly understood that change and loss travel together. And we can't have change without loss, which is why so often people say they want change, but nonetheless stay exactly the same same how can we get better at understanding pain differently and understanding change and loss differently and what helps this right so what I was just saying about the stages of change really applies to that because even when we're making a positive change we're going into a place that's uncertain we haven't been there before it's like where you are now even if it's unpleasant is familiar to you. You know what's gonna happen, you can predict it, you could write the script, you know exactly how it's gonna go. And there's something very comforting about the knowing, about the certainty. And so if you make a change, you don't know what's going to happen. You think you do, that's why you're making the change, but you haven't been there yet, you haven't experienced it yet. And humans don't do well with uncertainty. We just don't, we want to know, we want we want to read the script first, we wanna know what's gonna happen. And so it's almost like with change, someone has plopped you into a new country that you've never been to before. And you don't know the customs, you don't know the landmarks, you don't know the directions, you don't know the language, you don't know anything. You just know that it's going to be a new adventure. And that can be very anxiety provoking, even if it's an exciting adventure. And how do you, I suppose, moderate that? How best to land into a, a new kind of dynamic? And how do you kind of manage that anxiety when you're going through that? Well, one thing that holds people back from change is that they, they have to give up the hope for having a better past. Mm. So they have to give up the hope for having had a better childhood. Or if they're moving into a different kind of relationship, they have to give up the hope of, of having that person that hurt them really see them for who they are. And so they're still in the fight. And that's part of what prevents people from changing. You're still thinking, I just need to get that person to see that here's who I really am, to see me for who I am, whether that's my parents or my partner or, you know, whatever it is. And they're not going to do that. Mm. And so you have to give up the hope for people to see you differently. And so once you let go of the fight, once you say, okay, you know what? Nobody's winning here. Then you're ready to make the change. So I see people come into therapy all the time. And the first question that I ask them is not only why are you here, but I want to know why now, why this day, this week, this month, did you make that call when maybe this has been going on for a while? And I'm looking for not only what's not working, but I'm scanning for strengths. And one strength is their readiness. Just the mm -hmm. fact that they made the call, that they landed in my office 
shows me that they are ready for something, that they are ready to let go of that fight to have had a better past and really change something about the future. Now that is so spot on in terms of like, especially going through relationship breakups in terms of just like, you just so wish the other person, especially if you are in the situation that a relationship's ended that, and you didn't want it to end. And if anyone, if any listener is, is just gone through a breakup or, you know, heart healing, this book is just one of the most healing things that you can do for yourself by reading it because going through your story is just so healing for the reader. The heart healing process, what do you think then prevents recovery and what do you think accelerates recovery? I suppose you kind of did answer that in your last answer in terms of accepting, but if there is, is there any more nuanced tips? Yeah, so my whole thread in the book is about the breakup and how I go from feeling like, you know, he blindsided me to, wait a minute, I kind of had an idea about this, but I didn't want to see it. So a lot of times people say, I don't know what happened. I don't understand. It was out of the blue. And yet the person was telling you something and you just didn't want to see it or hear it. Mm right? So we have our own narrative and we, we make sense of what they're saying or doing in the way that we want things to work out sometimes. I have this new podcast called Dear Therapists and the first episode is about heartbreak. And it's about this woman who says, you know, I'm dating this guy and, you know, we were together for nine months and he just tells me, you know, I, I just, I don't love you in the way that I think I need to love you for us to continue this relationship. And she says, I don't know, what did I do? What changed? He had, he had been so in love with me. And listening to that episode will be so helpful for people to understand that process of what we tend to do is we want that we feel like we need closure and we need an answer and we need to know why what happened and why? Tell me why. Tell me specifically why. And we don't look at what we were doing in the relationship. And in fact, she wasn't getting her needs met in that relationship at all. She was so worried about whether he was going to love her that she didn't think about, wait, is he the right person for me? Am I getting my needs met in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And at one point she says, you know, this really damaged my self-esteem. It made me feel really bad when he did these things. And, and I said, wait a minute. So you handed your self-esteem to him so that he could be the holder of your self-esteem. That's a really dangerous thing to do. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to hand our self-esteem to somebody else. We are the holders of our self-esteem. We don't gift it to someone. We don't lend it to someone. It is ours and ours alone to keep. And I think what happens in relationships is that when somebody doesn't respond to us in the way that we want to be responded to, we immediately think, oh, wait a minute, what can I do to get them to like me in this way? What can I do differently? As opposed to, wait a minute, how do I feel about this person or this relationship? And it doesn't mean either of you is good or bad. It just means maybe it's not the right match. Maybe you want different things. Maybe you're at different places in your lives or maybe developmentally, right? What you're ready for in terms of a relationship is not what that person is ready for. Why do you think that we are all victims to placing our self-esteem in other people's hands? Well, I don't think that we all are. I think that's part of the, the beauty of what happens uh, when you learn from a painful experience. Mm. And that's what I tried to do in the book is sort of provide like, 
you know, it's almost like, here's, here's what would happen if you went to a therapist. And I think you can see yourself in every single mm -hmm. person's story, right? And learn something about yourself and what you do. And I think it's different when people say to you, you do this. And we're like, no, I don't do that. But then when you read another story and you say to yourself, oh, yeah, I kind of do that. I kind of like that. Oh, yeah, that's me right? It's a lot, you know, we were a lot less defensive. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. And I think also on the podcast where you hear other people's stories. And so instead of somebody saying to you, like, you do this, um, you're like, you're listening to someone else's story. And you say, Oh, yeah, I've done that. I'm like that, right? Yeah. And so I think that the growth is what's really going to help you in the next relationship. So you can see in that mm. first episode of the podcast, and also you can see in my breakup story, and, and also in Charlotte in the book with her trying to find the right partner being in her early 20s. I think that what you see is that the pain is useful in the sense of it helps you to see something about yourself so that you can take that insight into the next relationship. And what we like to say about insight is that insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning it's not just insight, it's, it's being vulnerable, it's being aware, and then it's also taking action and being accountable. So you can have the insight of, oh, yeah, I can see that my contribution to the relationship not working out was this, that yes, this person did this, and that was his or her part of the relationship, right? But then there's also my part in it. And when you can see your part and take that into the next relationship, and then also say, and I'm going to do something different. So, so many times, like someone will come into therapy and they'll say like, okay, now I see what I did in that relationship. And I just met this new person and I saw what I was doing. I was doing it again. And I saw it and I'll say, great. Did you do something different? And they'll be like, well, no, <laughs> but I saw what I was doing. And I said, great. Okay. But next time you actually have to respond differently. So it's like, yes, we still got into this big fight or I still felt hurt or I felt unloved or whatever happened. But now you have to do something different when that happens. So it's not just noticing what, you know, maybe you could have done differently or noticing how you respond. Again, going back to that Viktor Frankl quote at the beginning of our conversation today, but it's about that space and how do you choose your response in that space? And there's so much freedom in choosing a different response. There's this great metaphor that my own therapist gave to me that I write about in the book where he says, you remind me of this prisoner. Um, who's in jail and the prisoner is shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, no bars. The prisoner was not in jail. So, so many times we think we're in jail. We think we're trapped by this circumstance, this person. And by the way, there are difficult people in the world. A supervisor said to me when I was training, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right. So, so of course right. there are difficult people, but what is your response? Even when someone is treating you in a certain way, when they're being an asshole, right? What is your response? Do you want to be in that relationship? How do you want to talk to the person about what's happening in that moment? So true. The external environment um, brings to mind that famous saying, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. How much of kind of someone's external life do you think impacts their growth in the therapy room? Well, I definitely think that as we move through whatever is holding us back, we tend to um, hang out with people who are more like us in terms of where we are. So um, you'll find that there are people who have a lot of drama in their lives, tend to hang out with people who have a lot of drama in their lives. And then when somebody in that system changes, like somebody says, you know what, I'm not going to engage in so much drama, there's pressure in the group for that person to continue to engage in the drama. And when the person is very calm about things. People don't like that. 
And often what happens is either the other people in the group will take that example and say, wait, I'm going to change too. This person seems really healthy and she seems really happy now. Mm. And so maybe I'm going to do that. Or what happens is the person who's moving and growing and changing finds people who are more on her level now because that person, the drama doesn't serve her anymore. Drama is like a drug. It serves as a distraction. So just because, you know, when we're feeling something, often we decide, I don't want to feel that uncomfortable feeling. So what we do instead with it is we push it down, but it doesn't go away. And we, we self-medicate with things like too much food or wine or mindless scrolling on the internet or drama. Drama is a great drug. It will prevent you from feeling what you're actually feeling. It won't let you see it. And so once we take away the drug, we're able to use our feelings in a productive way. And I always say that feelings are like a compass. They tell us what we want. They tell us what direction to go in. So when you aren't feeling your feelings and you're medicating with the food and the wine and the internet and the drama and all of that, you don't have a direction. You don't know what direction to go in because it's like operating with a glitchy GPS. You can't see where, you know, what your feelings are telling you. If you're anxious, it's telling you, hey, wait a minute. What's not working here? And what do I need to pay attention to? If you're sad, you could actually sit and say, why am I sad? What do I need to change in my life? When you do the other things, you're not changing anything. You're simply trying to numb the feeling. But numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is actually the sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. I, when I read that, I actually noted it down and, and posted it on Instagram. I thought it was so, it resonated so much. And another uh, point you make about using emotions to your advantage um, is envy. And you say it shows you what you want. And that was a huge aha moment to me because the idea of jealousy has, I think, we well, I certainly have been conditioned to find it an, you know, an awful emotion. You shouldn't feel jealous, like, oh, God, no, not me. But actually, you demonstrate how actually it's a, a very useful one. Um, why is it that we are triggered by what we want? So I think that people feel envy and they immediately feel like, well, I can't feel that. I should not feel that. I need to be 100% happy for that other person, right? Or just it's, they feel like it's a comment on them that they're feeling envy, that somehow it says something bad about them. So I think a lot of people feel like, if I feel envy, then I'm a bad person. And instead, envy is a really useful feeling because it tells you what you want. It says, wait a minute, I want that. So instead of trying to push it down, say, I want some version of that in my life. And what steps do I need to take to get that? If you push down the envy, you will never take those steps. You will simply say, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm not going to feel that. I'm going to pretend that I didn't feel that. Instead of saying, wait a minute, this is giving me really good information. This is something I haven't paid enough attention to, and I need to pay more attention to it, which is I want something like that. And how come I haven't been doing what I need to do in my life to get that? What is holding me back? A topic that you um, very elegantly explore in your book and something that I think we don't talk about near enough is death. And you uh, beautifully help this woman kind of prepare for her passing. And you write, people are their most interesting when they are embracing death. And I would just love to kind of explore that a bit. So there's a woman in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I call her Julie. And she comes to me, she's in her early 30s, and she just got back from her honeymoon. And she feels something in her breast that she thinks maybe she's pregnant because they decided they were going to try to have kids right away. And um, it's actually breast cancer. 
And uh, she has what the doctor says is a very uh, treatable form of breast cancer. And so she comes to me because she doesn't want to be sort of part of the cancer team. She wasn't into the whole pink ribbons and optimism and all of that. She was actually very, you know, just a very real person. I think that people, when they think of cancer patients, they're like, she's a saint. No, she's, she's like, I'm not a warrior. I'm scared of needles. You know, like yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not brave. And I just want to be, you know, they said it's going to be fine. She's going to have to go through this treatment and, um, and she'll be fine. And she was. And so she just wanted to be a newlywed and, and sort of go through the, the treatment. And then six months later, when she was getting the scan to clear them so that she could try to get pregnant, um, they discovered a very different cancer in a different part of her body that was a very rare aggressive form of cancer and they said she had a year to 10 years to live and of course the difference between a year and 10 years is enormous and she was so young and she was just sort of starting off in this new phase of her life and so it was really this question of she said to me will you stay with me until I die and I had never done that before I was a relatively new therapist at the time she was young I had not gone through that particular experience with someone and I didn't want to screw it up for her. I, you know, she was going to get one shot at this and I wanted her to get it right, but it was the most meaningful and just this very deep, rich experience that we had together. And one of the things that she said that was so meaningful was at one point she was making a lot of choices that even her husband thought were a little bit crazy. And, and we thought, you know, do we think it's crazy because she's doing something unconventional right now with this time or do we think it's crazy because we're jealous, because we don't have the courage to do that in our own lives? And she said mm -hmm. to me, why do people need a terminal diagnosis to do what they really want to do in life? And even with COVID, right, I think people are starting to reprioritize and say, you know, I, I really noticed that this is important to me or I want to prioritize that. And so why do we need a crisis or a terminal diagnosis to live our lives with intention? And I think when we're young and like she was, you know, in your 20s and early 30s, people think they have a long time. And the fact is that life has a 100% mortality rate. And that's not just for other people. And so I think it's really important to keep death on one shoulder, not in a morbid way, not in a creepy way, but simply to say, most of us don't know how or when we are going to die. Why don't we live with intention every day? Don't think you have all this time to do things later. Because your 20s are actually a time when you're setting down the infrastructure for a lot of what's going to happen later. And everyone says, oh, you can do anything at any age. Well, yes and no. So yes, you can. But the time that you spend in your 20s laying down the tracks is going to pave the way for you to make things a lot go a lot more smoothly as you go through the different phases of your life. And so it's not just like, I don't have to be intentional. Or I can just date whoever I want because I'm just having fun. Or I don't really need to think about what I want to do professionally. Or I don't need to think about what fulfills me or, or how I want to heal whatever I need to heal with whatever I, you know, I'm dealing with in the past. Now is the time to do that. You, so you've spent hours and days with humans studying, listening to them, writing about them. And... I know this is a slightly bizarre question, but I thought about it today and I thought I'd ask you. If aliens came down to ask you, describe humans, what are they like? How could you describe the human soul? What would you say? <laughs> the first thing that came to mind was I would say humans are ridiculous. <laughs> and I mean that with the utmost compassion. That I think that's why there's a lot of humor in the book. Yeah. And because I feel like, you know, we have to be able 
to be kind to ourselves and to laugh at ourselves because we are ridiculous. <laughs> we say one thing and do another thing. We say, I want X and we do Y. We say, I want this thing. And then we do everything in our power to guarantee that we won't get that thing. We say, this is what will make me happy. And we do everything in our power to guarantee our own unhappiness until we wake up. And that I think is what therapy is about. And so I think the kindness part of it is, that's why I say humans are ridiculous. And I, I make that disclaimer that I'm saying that with compassion and with kindness, because we are so unkind to ourselves. In order to understand yourself and move forward and grow, you have to be kind to yourself. Usually when I'm, when I'm giving talks and I'll say to people, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? And I'll say, show of hands. Is it your partner? Is it your mom or your dad? Or is it your sibling? Is it your best friend? I get a lot of hands for those. But when I say, you know, the person you talk to most is yourself, people are surprised. We talk to ourselves more than we will talk to anybody else in the course of our lives. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And so I had this young woman who came to me and she did not see how self-critical she was. And I said, I want you to write down everything you say to yourself in the course of a few days and come back to me and we'll talk about it. And she came back the next week and she said, she started to read it and then she just stopped and she said, I can't read this. I am such a bully to myself. And there were things like, oh, you made that mistake. You're so stupid which we would never think if a friend made the same mistake, we wouldn't say, oh, she's so stupid. We'd just be, oh, she made that mistake, right? Or, oh my God, you look terrible. You're hideous, right? It's like, we would never think that about our friend if she looked exactly the way we looked that day. And so I think it's really important to say, yeah, we are ridiculous as human beings and we can laugh at ourselves. We can embrace ourselves. We can be kind to ourselves when we act in ways that we know, you know are maybe not our finest moment. And then we can learn from them. The most important part of that is when you are kind, you can learn from that and say, okay, and what can I learn for this? And what can I do differently? And that moment, that space that we were talking about earlier is exactly where that's where we learn how to live our lives in a different way. Are there any exercises that you find yourself giving to clients as homework? You just mentioned one being like, note down what you're saying to yourself, but are there others that you find are helpful in learning to be more self-compassionate? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's an exercise that I give in my TED talk, which is that this woman was very sure that she knew why her husband was doing what he was doing and acting in the way he was. And you see what happens when you get the other perspective. And so whenever you're stuck in something, write the story from the other person's perspective, even if you don't agree with it, even if it's different from yours. Just imagine that if they, if you were sitting in a therapist's office telling your version of the story, what that would be, and then imagine them sitting in the same therapist's office without you there, telling their version of the story. And maybe you would learn something about yourself from how that person perceives you and what your role in the difficulty has been. And what about kind of like tips for people who are just very self-critical, like I'm terrible, I'm not good enough, like I was useless, they probably thought I was a complete moron, that kind of like self-chat. I think it's important to, first of all, ask yourself whose voice is that because it's probably not the one you were born with. So we aren't born with that self-critical voice. That becomes an internalized voice from something that we were hearing. So you know whose voice it is when you really think about it. Who's sending those messages? And then the question is, why do you want to keep that person's company in your head? It's kind of like listening to a radio station 
that is like the mean radio station, like the really unpleasant radio. It's like the, it's like the music that like just makes your heart rate just like, you know, it's like you can't, it's like nails on chalkboard. Change the station. You don't have to listen to that station anymore. You might've had to when you were younger because you didn't have any choice, but now you get to choose. So just change the station, click on something else. Every time that happens, and it has to be a practice, that every time you say, oh, that's, so, that's Jane's voice, that's my mom's voice, <laughs> that's my sibling's voice, that's that horrible boyfriend's voice, right? Mm-hmm. That's that voice. Oh, I don't, I don't really need to hang out with that person right now. That person's not even in the room. Why am I letting them into my head? Before we go, um, just one question that I've been asked to ask you from a whole host of different people. How do you find a good therapist and what should you look out for? And how do you know you've got a good therapist? So what's really important about that is when you make an appointment with a therapist and you go in for an appointment, it doesn't mean your two choices are either I'm going to be in therapy with this person or I'm not going to go to therapy. The third choice is I might go to therapy with someone else. So the first session is a consultation. It's simply a time for you to sit in a room with this person and see what it feels like. And if it be, it's like a first date. Mm-hmm. And you know, do you want a second date? Not like, am I going to marry this person? You don't decide that on the first date usually. It's more about, do I want to go on a second date with this person? And if there was enough there, you'll probably go on a second date. So if you went into a therapy session and you leave and you say, did I feel understood? Do I feel like this person gets it? Did this person challenge me enough? And there's not going to be a whole lot of challenge maybe in that first session, but maybe they asked you one question that made you really think about, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way. I would go back for a second session. And then the second session, the same thing. And after several sessions, you will know, does this feel right? Or does this not feel like a person that I'm comfortable going through this process with? And if it's not, don't ghost the therapist. Okay, so you will grow so much from being able to say to someone, you know, I've been going through this for whatever reason. I just don't feel like there's the connection here. I'm not sure what it's about. And you'll talk about that with a therapist and maybe you'll learn something about yourself and maybe there's something going on with you and you'll say, oh, I didn't realize that was what was getting in the way. And maybe it turns out to be a really great relationship for you. Or maybe the therapist says, oh, I understand that. Yeah, let's talk about it. And then you decide, yeah, I'm just not, it's not working. The therapist might get you to the right person. Either way, you will learn how to have had that conversation because you will have to have that conversation in relationships outside of the therapy room too. So it's such a good experience instead of ghosting someone or being afraid of, of really just showing up, it will teach you how can I show up in relationships even when it's uncomfortable and hard. Wow. Brilliant answer. Thank you so much. So I'll put all your details in the show notes, but where's the best place to find you? Just love to hear it from you. People can go to my website, which is lauriegottlieb.com. They can find me on Twitter at lauriegottlieb1. They can find me on Instagram at lauriegottlieb underscore author. They can read my weekly Dear Therapist column in the Atlantic which runs every Monday. They can listen to my new podcast, which is called Dear Therapists, plural. It's with Guy Winch, who is the advice columnist for TED. And of course, I'm the advice columnist for The Atlantic. And we team up and we give people advice. And then they try it out. And they have a week to try out the advice. And just like with the woman who was going through the breakup, we had her, we had her do an exercise that week. And then she came back and told us how it went. And so we, we get to find out what worked, what didn't, and what we can all learn from it. And they can also read my book, of course. Maybe you should talk to someone and they can uh, listen to my TED Talk and, and uh, just kind of, you know, explore and, and learn from whatever is most useful to them. 
Well, thank you so much. I just, from the bottom of my heart, this has just been the most fantastic interview and you've just shared oh, so many golden nuggets for us to think about for, for a long time. So really, thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for the conversation. I was so excited to be able to talk with you today. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.